0: You may be seated, and children, you may go with Mrs. Seaman for Children's Church. So it's Palm Sunday, we've said that already, we've talked about that, and our worship service has focused us and our attention to the fact that it is indeed, excuse me, Palm Sunday. So we have the privilege of worshiping our great God and thinking about him and thinking about the sacrifices that were made on our behalf, and we want to do that by focusing on some of the truths from God's word. So, if you have your copy of the scriptures, I'm going to ask you to take them and open to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to spend uh, some of our time there this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 21. It's the it's Matthew's account of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But I also want you to take your uh, put your finger there in Matthew chapter 21 and turn back to the Old Testament prophetical book of. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9 is, uh, we're going to kind of be going back and forth between Matthew chapter 21 and Zechariah chapter 9. You don't have to keep flipping back and forth there, but these, uh, the promise made or the prophesy, prophecy made in Zechariah 9 actually is fulfilled in the Gospels. And one of the Gospel accounts is in Matthew chapter 21 where, Jerusalem le- where, where Jesus left and headed to Jerusalem for that triumphal entry. And that's found in Matthew chapter 21. It's that account that we call, we consider, Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. It was the start of the final week of Jesus' life. Okay, Jesus, this is the, the holy week, as some call it, the week of passion, the week that none of us would want to go through, but a week that Jesus endured so that he might purchase for us redemption and salvation. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were on their way from Jericho to Jerusalem. It was about a 17-mile trip up a treacherous, winding pathway. And we say up because from Jerusalem, everything was down. And if you were going to go to Jerusalem, you had to travel up to get to Jerusalem. So they were traveling that 17-mile trip up to Jerusalem because Jesus knew that that's where he had to be during this final week of his life. Now, somewhere between Jericho and Jerusalem, they came across a couple of blind men, and it's from these two blind men that comes a foreshadowing of what we will see at the end of the Passion Week, the end of the Holy Week, Um, or actually on that Sunday. So Jesus is traveling to Jericho. He meets these two blind men. Let me read the conversation with you that Jesus had with these blind men goes like this, and behold, this is in Matthew chapter 20, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. It was those that could not see that proclaimed hope in who Jesus is, the son of David. Now for the Jewish people, that meant one thing these men were recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the one who would bring hope and peace to the nation. Matthew is clear that the crowd rebuked this blind duo. He, he tells us that they, the, the crowd said, hey, stop saying that. Stop calling him the Son of David. Do you know what you're saying by calling him that? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, we do know what we're saying. In that act... The religious leaders and the crowds demonstrated their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. But in those words, those blind men looking for hope, looking for uh, encouragement, looking for something from Jesus that no one else could do, they continued to cry out to the Son of David, who they knew is God, God in the flesh. And Jesus. In pity, the scripture says, reached out and healed them. That very moment, their sight was returned to them. He offered to them hope and life. He took away the darkness. He took away the blindness. Now, you know what? For those of us today living on the other side of that first Palm Sunday, we now have the darkness taken away from our eyes. We have hope. We have the light of Jesus that shines into our life and that leads us and guides us. When called the son of David, Jesus accepted their claim to his being the Messiah. He healed these blind men and gave them hope. It's clear that on on these times when Jesus performed these miracles, he was showing the power that he has as God, as God in the flesh. Jesus was never afraid to heal. He was never afraid to be called the Messiah. But on this day, as he's getting ready to enter Jerusalem triumphantly, he's ready to proclaim to the nation of Israel that he is indeed the Messiah. He is the one who is the son of David. David Reagan makes this comment. He says, the New Testament Jews knew that the title son of David as another title for the Messiah, Jesus mentioned that the scribes taught that Christ is the son of David. When Jesus healed a man who was both blind and deaf by casting out unclean spirits, the people said, is not this the son of David? Over in Matthew chapter 12, they were identifying Jesus Christ as the Messiah who was the promised one to come. You know, for the people of Israel, this day meant more than I think we can imagine. More than I think we can wrap our minds around. They had been waiting since they, ever since they became a nation for this one who was the Messiah. The one who was going to free them from their sins. This phrase, son of David, it's used 13 times in the New Testament. And every time, it's a reference to Jesus. Except for one when it says that da- Joseph, Jesus' earthly representation of a father, was a son of David, but not the son of David. This phrase, Son of David, is a reference to Jesus. Six of those times it is used, it is associated with a miracle of healing. Here's another interesting thought. Nine of those times it is used in the book of Matthew. Matthew, you remember what Matthew is all about? You remember why Matthew wrote his gospel? The perspective from which Matthew wrote? Matthew wrote from the perspective that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah. He's the King, He's the king and so he's writing to Jewish people and what he writes is to point them to the truth that Jesus is the son of David, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the king of kings. He's writing so Jewish people will know who this Jesus is. He's building a case that Jesus is the king of the Jews. So there's great significance when this name was applied to Jesus. These blind men that Jesus healed outside of Jericho while while he was traveling to Jerusalem, they provide us with the introduction to the one who will rightfully be addressed and worshiped as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to talk this morning about the entrance of the King on that first Palm Sunday so many years ago. In Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read together verses 1 through 11. Uh, should be up on the screen. Would you stand with me together as we read Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11? Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, "'Go into the village opposite you,' And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. "'lowly and sitting on a donkey, "'a colt, the foal of a donkey. "'So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. "'They brought the donkey and the colt, "'laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. "'And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. "'Others cut down branches from the trees "'and spread them on the road. "'Then the multitude who went before And those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Thank you, God, for... This day that we read about in the account from Matthew, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Sometimes we kind of get confused and wonder, how could it be a triumph when it ended in his death? But Lord, we know that that death was what you planned to redeem lost mankind. So indeed, it was a triumph, the triumphal entry, the time in which Jesus was declaring himself to be the king of the Jews and king of those who would follow him. Thank you for King Jesus. We ask that you'll bless our time together in your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Matthew here in chapter 21, verses one through 11 clearly communicates to us that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus has every right to the throne of David. He is the fulfillment of the promised one who is to rule. The son of Jesse, the son of David, the lion if you will, of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who has every right to sit on the throne of David. We know the story of the entry, so we're not going to read the whole chapter, but let me highlight just a few things in this account with you before we get into the entrance fit for a king. These the disciples and Jesus were getting closer to Jerusalem, almost around the Mount of Olives. And and, you know, if you haven't really done a lot of research, a lot of study on the Mount of Olives, it would be good for you to to study the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about the Mount of Olives. It's a very significant place in Bible history. It's where Jesus is going to come back to the Mount of Olives when he comes back. For his second advent um, but Jesus and his disciples were around the Mount of Olives and he gave instructions to his disciples he told them go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey and a colt there you, and, and when you find them untie them and bring them to me now we might think it kind of sounds like Jesus is telling them to steal a donkey and steal a colt what's going on here That's, they're not Jesus's how, how does he have the right to take them well, you got to remember who Jesus is, right? He's God. He can take what he wants. But he also knows that the owners of this donkey and this colt will freely, willingly give them to their Lord and to their Savior, Jesus. And so he says to them, if anyone asks of you, what are you doing? Why do you, you know, Who do you think you are taking these, these animals? They don't belong to you. If somebody questions you about that, tell them. The master, Jesus, the Messiah, he needs them. And, and when you tell them that, they will send them with you immediately. And we don't get it in Matthew, but if you read the other accounts of the Gospels, you'll see that that conversation actually took place with the owners of the donkey. And they said, yes, by all means, take them. They're for him. Let him have them. Let him use them. Now, you have to also understand that the, G, the, the disciples had been with Jesus now for three years, okay, uh, they've been serving with him, they've been ministering with him, they've been learning from him. And one of the things that they learned was that if Jesus tells you to do something, you do it. it. It makes sense for you to do it, okay? You don't beat around the bush, you don't hem and haw, you don't say, but what about? Because Jesus has that all covered. Okay, Jesus knows what he's doing. And, and you know what? When, when Jesus told them to do this They did what? They acted in faith. They did what God told them to do, and God um, worked everything out according to them. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus knew that today was the day that he would fulfill the prophecies in Jewish scripture. What prophecy is that, Pastor? Well, we find it um, in, in Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew writes, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying... Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. That's in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So they were doing what Jesus told them to do. They brought the donkey, they brought the colt, they placed their clothes on him, and Jesus sat upon the donkey. Now, we might think that this was something that was kind of silly for Jesus to take the colt and take the donkey and and, and you, but you know what? This is full of biblical and theological importance, significance. It demonstrates that Christ had come to be the king. And as he dry, rides into Jerusalem on this donkey, he is making a legitimate offer of the kingdom of God to the people of Israel. And you know what happens? They don't want him. They reject him. Oh, now, there's a handful of people that are, uh, in fact, it says multitudes. So there was a great number of people that wanted him, but the religious leaders and the people in mass, they didn't want him. They didn't accept him, and they rejected his offer as the messianic king of all Israel and of all mankind. But we find out here in Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 5 that we have indeed a valid king. Jesus is the valid king. Uh, And in Zechariah chapter 9, so if you want to turn back there now to Zechariah chapter 9, we're going to spend some time looking there at that verse and and it's almost reading the same thing, uh, so we're not going to read it again. But there Zechariah says, see your king comes to you. He's prophesying it, and Matthew chapter 1, it's unfolding, it's happening. It's safe to say that since nearly the beginning of time, people have been waiting for the promised one. Adam and Eve were waiting for the promised one. If we read Genesis chapter 4, Eve says, I've gotten a man-child from the Lord. She thought that her firstborn son was the one who was going to fulfill the promise of the one who would crush Satan's head. She didn't see that fulfillment in her lifetime. And when Jesus called the, the Abraham to be the nation through which he would work, the nation through which all the world would be blessed, every Jewish girl longed to be that virgin who would give birth to the Messiah, the one who would bear the Son of God. We get more specifics as we read through the Old Testament passages of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God had a conversation with Abraham. He called him out of Ur, the Chaldees, and he said, Go to a land that I will show you, a land that flows with milk and honey. It's a land that I will bless you in. And as you are a blessing, as I bless you, you will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. The Jewish people held God to that promise, they expected God to keep his word. And you know what? God always keeps his word. That's why we say to you that even though some of those prophecies have not yet been fulfilled, don't give up because Christ is coming back. And every one of those prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled during Christ's second advent. To the T. Nothing will be left undone. Nothing will be forgotten But you know what? There were a lot of prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' first advent. We're going to see some of them this morning. The people of Israel had always understood Zechariah's prophecy to be a reference to the Messiah, to God's anointed king. So on this day that Jesus enters Jerusalem, what does he do? Well, he's presenting himself as the king. When Jesus mounted the donkey, and not just any donkey, but specifically a purebred colt as Zechariah had promised, he was presenting himself as Israel's promised king. By his actions, Jesus was saying, behold, I am your king. I am coming to you. Will you receive me? You see, the Jewish people, they knew their Old Testament scriptures, And many people in the crowd would have remembered those words of Zechariah and recognized exactly what Jesus was doing. And so that's why they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. In fact, we see the perception of the Jews as the rest of this passage unfolds. And one of the clues here of, the people of Jer- that Jer- the people of Jerusalem recognized Jesus is that they, they said to him, Hosanna, Son of David. Hosanna, Son of David. It, using this title, Son of David, they were acclaiming Jesus to be their rightful king. They recognized by, by the words they said, they recognized that he came in the name of the Lord. What a day it was for these people. You know, it's often overlooked, this prophecy in Zechariah. But it explains why Jesus rode a donkey. Long before Zechariah, Jacob pronounced his blessing on his son Judah He said, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs and the obedience of nations is his will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. All the way back in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob prophesied this entrance of Jesus on a donkey as the king of kings and the Messiah of Israel. Jacob's prophecy meant that Israel's true king would come from the tribe of Judah, and that in some way he would be associated with a colt and with a donkey. What is hinted at in Genesis was made plain in the Gospels. Jesus, the son of David, from the tribe of Judah, rode into Jerusalem as Israel's rightful king. What a day! No wonder they call it the triumphal entry. The hopes and dreams of the Jewish nation was being fulfilled right before these people's eyes. And therefore they are crying out, Hosanna! 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 Jesus is the king. His loyal subjects must recognize his kingship. And that's what they were doing. Son of David. Messiah. Messiah. All glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of the children... This is from Theodulf of Orleans. He wrote a hymn. And these are the words. All glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet Hosanna's ring. Thou art the King of Israel, thou David's royal son, who in the Lord's name comest, the King and Blessed One. Poetry goes well with the ancient facts of history. And as they uh, realized that Jesus was their rightful king, Jesus was the Messiah, they bowed before him, they worshiped him, they adored him. And just who is it that they were adoring? They were adoring the victorious king, Jesus, the king of kings. Over in Luke chapter 19, a parallel account, um, we read this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout! Shout! Daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. You see, the second thing that Jesus revealed by riding into Jerusalem is that he was indeed a victorious king. Now, again, people might question that as, we, as the Holy Week wears on and Jesus ends up hanging on a cross. But we want to remind ourselves today that Jesus is indeed the victorious king. Zechariah's instruction to Israel was threefold back in Zechariah chapter 9. He wants the children of Israel to rejoice greatly. So what do we have here? They're to sense this rejoicing. The word Zechariah uses is a great word. Listen to the Hebrew word, um, the meaning of the Hebrew word. It is a response of the people both religiously as when they divide the spoils of the Lord's victories and or when they rejoice in his salvation. That's what it means when Zachariah says rejoice greatly. He's saying rejoice in the religious victories that God has given to you. Rejoice in the spiritual victories that God has given to you. And notice that this rejoicing is not just a little bit of rejoicing. It is great rejoicing. I have to think that this rejoicing is very similar to the rejoicing of the Red Sea crossing. Remember when they were being led out of Egypt? The ten plagues had been displayed upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And they were, the, the, the Jewish people were, were rejoicing as they left Egypt. They were now given their freedom. They were on their way. But in Pharaoh's mind, there was something amiss. He realized, oh no, I've given up all this free labor. I've, I've made a huge mistake. We need to go get these people and bring them back. So as the throng of Israelite people were leaving Egypt, they were crossing through and getting close to the Red Sea. There were mountains on both sides of them and a sea at flood stage in front of them. No place to go. They looked behind them and what do they see? mighty Pharaoh with his great army and their chariots and all of their soldiers coming to force Israel to return to Egypt. And Moses cries out, Lord, what are we to do? And God says, walk on, Moses. Just take, take the next step. Let me lead you through the Red Sea. So as the priests and the, the Ark of the Covenant, as they step into the Red Sea, whoosh, the sea splits And not just a little path for two or three people to walk across. A huge, a huge rift in the sea. Large enough for over a million people to cross. The Bible gives us the exact length of that sea. It tells us from this part, part to this part of the Red Sea. And it was a long piece of property that they walked across on. And you know what? It wasn't muddy either. We might think that the Red Sea, when it, cro- when it opens up, it would have to be muddy because it was just a river flowing through there at flood stage. You know what it's like. All you have to do is walk down into the marshes. Now with the, we have so much rain and so much moisture around us. There's mud all over the place. God parted the Red Sea, dried up the ground. They crossed through on dry ground. Pharaoh and his army, not knowing what to expect, not knowing what happened, but they said, hey, if it happened for them, it might as well be good for us. Let's take advantage of it. Well, they did, and they got into the Red Sea, the whole army, all the way into the Red Sea, and guess what? God closed it up. Joke's on you, Pharaoh. God's in control. God knew what he was doing. And when they got to the other side, we read in the very next chapter this great rejoicing from Miriam and the people of Israel. There's a song about it. It goes like this. I will sing unto the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. The Lord, my God, my strength and song has now become my victory. The Lord, my God, my strength has now become my victory. The Lord is God and I will praise Him. My Father is God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is God and I will praise Him. I want you to think about this moment in Israel's history. An incredible moment that it was. Moses had led them out of captivity. God set them free through the ten plagues and a mighty outstretched arm. It was amazing, so much so that the children of Israel broke into worship to the one true God. Can I tell you, this moment that is unfolding on the road to Jerusalem, this moment... When Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9, is even a greater moment than the Jordan River crossing. Salvation is about to unfold to the people of Israel and to mankind at large. Triumphal entry? Oh, that's putting it mildly. Jesus is the King. Now, as we move to this point in time when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, these folks are seeing the greatest moment in history unfold before their eyes. Not all Jews, but at least the ones hailing him as the Messiah understood what Zechariah was saying and understood that what he was saying is now becoming true in their time. Right before their very eyes. And so, when Zacharias says, shout to the Lord, daughters of Zion, I don't think that those people who were followers of Jesus could do anything else but shout to Jesus. Shout, O daughters of Zion. This word shout is a victory Shout. This is a shout of adoration. It's a shout of praise. It means to make a loud noise. It it means to make a noise like a trumpet. Uh, It was used when they led people into war. It was used when they were victorious in war. It was a response to the Lord's activity. Deliverance from the hand of the wicked one. Now unfortunately, many Jews, those that were not crying out to the son of David here, They were looking for deliverance from Rome. They were looking for the wrong kind of deliverance. Jesus came to deliver them from their sins, not from their captors. But Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he is promising that long-waited-for delivery of mankind from the bondage of sin. Along with the joy, there was a shout, uh, a cry of victory. Zechariah. Prophesied that victory. So the children of Israel, they were to sense the joy. They were shout to the Lord, as Zechariah says. And then lastly, Zechariah says, you are to see your king. See your king. He's coming to you. What does it mean? Well, he's coming. There's no doubt. The Messiah is here. Don't let this time slip by without understanding and knowing. Jesus is your king, and he's coming just as was prophesied. The hopes and the dreams of the people were about to enter the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah also says that he is righteous. See that Jesus is the righteous king. Jesus personifies righteousness. There's none righteous like him. Jesus is God in the flesh. The word righteous is a perfect word for Jesus. It is a word that describes both the way he will reign and his very nature. His reign will be righteous because his nature is righteous. Jesus is the righteous one. Not only is he coming, not only is he righteous, but Zechariah says he is bringing salvation. Zechariah prophesied that the king, that King Jesus would bring salvation to his people. This is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham that the world would be blessed through his offspring. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and many other scriptures remind us that Jesus is the only one who can save, the only one who can bring salvation. So as he rides into into Jerusalem on this donkey, he is bringing salvation for mankind. Let me stop here and ask you a question. Are you participating in this victory? Say, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, if you're here this morning and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then you can enjoy this victory. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, then you're missing out on the thrill of victory. God wants you to trust Him as His Savior. Peter, we've looked there, we'll look at it in a couple weeks. Peter says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants you to be saved. So if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know the thrill of victory. You know that you will not taste the defeat of death. You will cross from this life into the next, into the very presence of God Almighty. Hallelujah! What a Savior! You see, the Jews of Jesus' day were participating in the victory, even though they didn't understand what was going to happen in the week to come. They didn't understand that he would hang on a tree and that he would die, and and they didn't know that he would be resurrected, not for lack of information, but probably for lack of faith, and because they didn't want that to happen to him. They wanted him to be the king. They wanted him to deliver them from Rome. But that wasn't the plan at the time. They welcomed Jesus as their victorious savior. Scripture tells us that they used palm branches. Palm branches were a symbol of victory. Scripture tells us that they were shouting Hosanna. Hosanna is not so much a word of praise as it is a prayer. You know what Hosanna actually means? It means, oh Lord, save us. Oh Lord, save us. Psalm 18 uses that word again and again. It's a cry for help. Son of David, save us. Son of David, save us. But over time, this phrase, Hosanna in the highest, has become a shout of praise to the one who has offered salvation to mankind. You see, by waving their palm branches and by shouting Hosanna to the Son of David, the people were crying out for salvation (coughs) from their victorious king. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the victorious king, but you know else we see as, as our triumphal account continues? We see that he is a virtuous king. He's a virtuous king. The idea of virtuous may not be as easily understood in our world today. It's, it was more common in years gone by. It fits well, though, with the word that Matthew uses when he says Jesus is coming on a donkey in meekness, in meekness. The word meekness means an inward grace of the soul, a calmness toward God in particular. Mildness and forbearance would be good synonyms for this word meek. A meek person is much like a virtuous person, one that is marked by moral excellence, by righteousness, and by uprightness. Now, we've already established the fact that you and I, we don't have much righteousness to offer. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, who writes about the coming of Jesus, he says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. I don't have really anything to offer to God as righteousness or moral uprightness. But we sang this morning, his robe's for mine. Jesus took my filth, my dirt, my sinfulness upon his body when he hung there on the cross. My sins and your sins were placed upon him. He carried the weight of our sin. He satisfied the just requirements of a holy God. Death. By shedding his blood, Jesus paid For my sins, and then gave to me his righteousness. Oh, I can be righteous because Jesus took my robes and gave me his. A meek person is a virtuous person, but our virtues, they all come from Jesus. They all come from the Son of God who hung on the cross. I got his righteousness, which makes me upright before God. These are all things that are characterized by the king on the donkey. Righteousness, meekness, uprightness, gentleness. In ancient times when a king rode into a city, it was usually to show his power and his majesty. The Jews of Jesus' day were desperate to be delivered from the Romans. They wanted Jesus to enter Jerusalem as their commander, as the head of a mighty army, ready to defeat the Romans and ready to deliver them from their mighty captors. Can you imagine if that would have happened? Wow. Well, not to the degree, but nobody ever thought that Ukraine would be able to stand up to Russia. Nobody ever thought that Ukraine would defeat Russia, and now they're talking about that. They're talking about the fact that it could be at the hands of a low, lowly country like Ukraine, the mighty Russia, Russian army is defeated. Had Israel defeated Rome on that day, it would have been far greater defeat than what we're witnessing in Eastern Europe today. And that defeat will happen That defeat is coming. Jesus is coming back. And you know what scripture says when he comes back? He won't be on a donkey. You know what he's going to be on? He's going to be on a white horse. He's going to come and he's going to deliver his people. And he's going to set up his king. And he's going to rule. And he's going to reign for a thousand years. And don't let anybody tell you any differently. It is going to happen. He will come in great power and great glory. But his plan for this triumphal entry was to deliver you and I and mankind from the bondage of sin. To crush the head of Satan. To defeat Satan's plan and purpose in this world. Was it triumphal? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. This virtuous king, Zechariah and Matthew, tell us that he is gentle Gentleness is one of those attributes that pertains to Jesus Christ. Zechariah says, see your king, he comes to you gentle. The king's gentleness is symbolized by his mode of transport. He didn't ride a horse, a mighty steed. He rode a lowly donkey. In fact, he was on the colt of the donkey. He was on a, the foal of the donkey. Not a mighty warhorse, But the people who were willing to accept Jesus for who he was, accepted his mode of transport. They accepted the gentle king, the borrowed donkey. Clarence McCartney writes this, how strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities which they had taken. This time, no wall broken down for entry. This time, no garlanded hero standing in his war chariot Driving down the lane of cheering subjects, past smoking altars, followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, just a meek and lowly man riding on the foal of a donkey. That was the virtuous king entering in to the city of Jerusalem. You know what else shows us that he was he was virtuous, that he was gentle. While all the people are cheering and chanting and praising and worshipping the king we read that Jesus his heart was weeping there were tears rolling down his eyes he looked out over the city of Jerusalem as he was about to enter and he was full of compassion he saw them as sheep without a shepherd oh Jerusalem Jerusalem you who kill the prophets how many times I have longed to gather you up like a mother hen gathers up her chicks and put you under my wings to protect you, to, to bring you salvation, but you would not have it. His heart is breaking because his people are rejecting him as the deliverer from sin. Wow. Jesus was sad Well, everybody else was crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Another indication of the virtue of Jesus is seen in the relationship that he has with his subjects. You notice that it says here, Daughters of Zion cry out. Zechariah says that, Matthew says that. The the daughters of Zion, it's, it's a reference to the people of Israel. The word daughter is a reminder that God regards his people as his own beloved son. He is to them a good father. A good father. You know what? You and I, we have a good, good father as well. I want to read the words to a song for you, or at least part of them. Good, good father. Um, Chris Tomlin sings this, uh, and we have the opportunity and the privilege of, of hearing it on the radio and worshiping with him. He says that you are a good, good father. He God wants all what is good for you and I. He wants what is best for us. He looks out for us. He longs to protect us. He longs to keep us safe. He longs to love on us and provide for us the things that we need because He is indeed a good, good Father. He wants you and I to understand His goodness, to bask in His goodness, to live in His goodness. Because that's his nature, that's his character. He wanted that for his children of Israel, but they didn't want that from him. When he comes back, oh, he will be that good, good father to them that he needs, that they need, and that we so long for. Shout, O daughters of Zion, understand that you have a good, good father. We also see in the text here that he shall speak peace to the nations. The king's rule will be characterized by peace and that peace will be widespread. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10 says that, that he will, he will bring peace to the nations by removing the instruments of war. Philip Ryken makes this comment about the peace that the Messiah will bring. The Hebrews call it shalom, which is not simply the absence of warfare, but it also is the presence of welfare. Shalom is God's fullest blessing of harmony and prosperity. When Jesus sits on the throne of David, there will be peace in the earth. Prosperity will rule in the earth because Jesus is the rightful King. You and I, we have this blessing of a relationship with King Jesus, He calls us family. He gives us peace. Think about how he treats us. He brings us healing. He brings us hope. He forgives. He restores. He hears our prayers. And he calls us to enter into service with him and for him. That's all relationship that you and I have with this King Jesus. He might not be ruling on the throne of David at this moment. But it is our hope and our prayer that he rules in our lives, that he rules in our hearts, that he is seen as our king and as our savior and as the one who we desire to serve. So what a day that first Palm Sunday must have been. The hopes and the dreams of a nation coming into view. The valid, victorious, virtuous king entering the city. He was full of compassion and ready to give them their greatest desires. Such an amazing thing was unfolding as Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on that day, into the royal city, to the the cries, Hosanna! Hosanna! To the red carpeting of the streets, if you will. To the acceptance by some as the king and their Messiah. Try to picture that in your mind's eye if you can. As Jesus rode down into the Kidron Valley, there were people in front of him. There were people behind him. There were people on both sides of him, all around him. They were waving palm branches. They were throwing down their robes to make a a procession of praise. They kept shouting and shouting and declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is the one who deserves to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It was exactly the kind of welcome that Jesus deserved. He is the son of David. He is the true and the rightful king of the nation of Israel. He deserves all the high hosannas because he's the gentle savior and the mighty king. He entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. And I want to encourage you this morning that if he has not entered into your heart and into your life, that today would be a Palm Sunday of sorts for you, where you would trust the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. And if he is, let's make today a day of worship and praise and honor and glory to the King of Kings. Not just today, but the week to come, the month to come, the years that God should tarry here and leave us to worship him. May we do that well with all of our hearts our gracious heavenly father we come before you this morning we thank you so much that your son Jesus came in the flesh took on flesh lived among us he entered into the city of Jerusalem as the king of kings and the lord of lords he ended that week on the cross of Calvary where the king paid the ransom for his children Today we are blessed to be part of your family because of the acts of Jesus while he was here on earth. He knew that's why he came. It was a struggle for him. We know the account in the garden where he cried out, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But he gladly bore that cup. Right here, of Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and he endured that cross, he despised that shame for our sake, in obedience to you. So this morning we cry out Hosanna in our hearts, and even from our mouths, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he, our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.